Welcome, my friends, to the show that never ends. It's the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. I'm your co-host, Ed Krasnick, my co-host, Jennifer Kalari, coming up in just a few minutes. This is the show where we talk about personal mental health issues and practice skills because mental health is great to talk about, but it's even better when you practice it. It is a practice. It's better when you do it. And the skills are not complicated. You know, the crap we put ourselves through is much more complicated. And when I say we, I mean me. On the show today, this is great. I mean, I, this is terrific. A real innovator, a clinical psychologist, researcher, assistant professor, entrepreneur, who is the co-founder of Equip Health, um, which is really amazing because it's a virtual a treatment program, a full treatment program that brings treatment home is what it is. Uh, it tries to make accessible care to everyone, and it does with eating disorders. So today's show, our conversation is going to be about eating disorders. Um, and really, the amazing Aaron Parks is here today. So Aaron Parks here today experiences storm right now. Not a storm of emotions, but an actual storm, but but doing well, <laughs> hanging in, hanging in. Um, today's yeah. show. Yes, I am. She's hanging in. Today's show is sponsored by Hetty. Hetty is the new app that lets you record, listen, and talk to the voices in your head. Hetty prompts you to share your inner thoughts and guides you to respond to them. The critical voice, the catastrophizer voice, the globalizer. And with a premium subscription, customizable celebrity voices can talk to you. You may be insecure, but when Liam Neeson tells you it's going to be okay, it's going to be okay. Get ready for Hetty. I just want to say that I, you know, I make all these things up, of course, but honest to God, most of them could actually be products and will if I have anything to say about it. They will. Okay. We always like to welcome people no matter what emotional state they're in. Here are emotional shout outs. If you're upset that your life is not a Yellowstone spinoff, welcome. If you've, if, if you've decided to scare your family by simulating natural and unnatural disaster drills, welcome. If you've installed an emotional seesaw and mood swings in your living room, welcome. If you're exhausted by experts who number things, then this three-step process will change your life. Welcome. If you go to a free online webinar for anything and are surprised when the host tries to sell you something, welcome. And if you're beating yourself up even now, there's always a place for you right here on the Mental Health Comedy Podcast. And now it's that time, everybody. It's time for the Rasputin of Resilience, the Apollo of the Amygdala, and the Sacagawea of Serotonin, <laughs> Jennifer Kalari. Jennifer, uh, welcome. Uh, um, yeah, we're doing new stuff every week. We try to. We're trying to. Yep. I always uh, look forward to see what you've come up with. Sacagawea of Serotonin, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> All right, uh, Jennifer, now we can talk about, you know, what I thought we'd talk about before we bring Aaron out here is how it's it's not exactly related to food or eating disorders, but it's, how does a caregiver, a family member, take care of themselves while supporting someone else? Oh, that's such a good question. And it's so important. And often people get so consumed and worried, understandably, about their loved one or their child that they completely neglect themselves and then end up running on fumes. And so probably the best way to think about it is you really are helping the person you love by helping yourself, by keeping yourself as rested and strong um, as you can by practicing self-care. And, and a lot, and, you know, often people don't want to do that. They they feel like they're being selfish or, you know, the other person is suffering so much. How can I take care of myself and be happy? But honestly, you're no good to the person you love if you're exhausted and you're a total wreck and you can't access your own frontal lobe because you're, you know, busy reacting to the world. And, and it is so unbelievably painful and exhausting to be the parent of a child who has an eating disorder. It's absolutely terrifying. Um, and the trauma that it causes the parent is often not talked about. I'm sure Aaron will talk about it, but it's, it's devastating for parents. It really is. Well, I, you know, I probably am going to cry through the episode because I've I've experienced this uh, in my own family, uh, and I have a lot of uh, a lot of thoughts and feelings about it. 
yeah. for sure. So yeah, well, self-care is really important. What are there skills? Are is there a check-in? Is there an early warning system? Is there a way to? Is there preventative? You know, healthcare. Uh, how how do you do it? How well, do you it, check yeah. in on it? Do it. It it's really hard to because and and we can sort of dive into this in the episode too. But parents are often feel so guilty themselves, punish themselves, blame themselves. They often don't feel like they deserve any um, self-care and, and taking any time to sort of nurture and rest is hard. And they also, a lot of parents have such a hard time sharing what their child is going through. That's They're embarrassed or they're mortified or they, it makes it real when they talk about it out loud. And it's a very complex and difficult world. I mean, it's certainly helpful for parents to find support with uh you know, people they care about and family members they can trust, certainly other parents that might understand and are going through the same thing. Um, I I would would love to ask Aaron this. There's, you know, what kinds of things can parents do to really take care of themselves? It's just such a complicated, nuanced thing that, you know. You know, and I would say too, I would say the other thing is even if you're not like a, if you're not caring for someone who's ill, but you're, you're a parent of a child, Mm-hmm. How, the it's really important to have the early warning to have the you know to check in with yourself and take space before you know you talk about that a lot in your work at connected mm-hmm. parenting sure. it, it's it, it you know being a caregiver being a parent of a child you you must you know we always go over the edge yeah you know, and we don't have to but we, you know you're a human being yeah. so you will yeah, of course and you're never off duty like never well i was visiting uh Toronto a couple of weeks ago, my husband and I, we have very good friends of ours who da- whose daughter is going through something. And, you know, they promised themselves at the beginning of the dinner, they're not going to talk about it and they're going to try to have fun, but you could just see that it was so stressful. And halfway through the dinner, they're talking about it. And, you know, that looking at their watch, thinking how long they've left, because they got to go back and watch their daughter, who's, you know, close to 20. Um, and you just see the toll that it takes and the guilt and the just, it's all consuming. It's really, really tough. So, they're probably long past early warning systems, symptoms, but the truth is anytime you feel raw and you feel like you're just reacting to absolutely everything. Um, and, and just, I think honestly, the best thing for parents is to know that you're loving your child and helping your child by, by keeping yourself as strong as you can. And that's a hard one. Is there, there's self things. I know with anger, sometimes you, you put your, you know, you, you, you put your hand on your heart or you try to describe out loud, you know, but in a soft yeah. voice, what you're feeling yeah. and things yeah. like that. So you don't have to, you well, that can, to. I mean, that can certainly help. You can literally put your hand right over your heart. You can close your eyes and you can just say, this is how it feels to be the parent of a child who's really struggling, who thinks they don't deserve food, who where you're on duty all the time. You're never off. It's this intense responsibility. It's okay to sort of go inward and and feel all the things that you need to feel sometimes by going towards the emotions a little bit, you can kind of, I don't know, process them a bit and metabolize them a little bit and then get stronger and get back out there and do what you have to do for your child. But it's also a time when parents completely fall apart. (laughs) Like so, so often parents have to just keep in this certain gear because if they actually let go, they're afraid that they would fall apart. So it's a very nuanced and complex thing. There's no easy answers, unfortunately. Yeah, I wish I, I wish I would have, you know, even sometimes just just uh, putting my hand on my solar plexus because that's really where all the panic is, you know, uh, for me. And mm-hmm. so, so I could do that, you know, twenty, thirty times a day. Um, yeah, and listen, tapping can help. Tapping can help a lot. The emotional freedom technique, yeah, yeah tapping, mm-hmm. so powerful. That can just sort of help, and you can do it every couple of hours. You can also, this sounds crazy, but you can tap like uh, as if you're tapping for your child. And that sometimes can re- really help calm you down. Um, there, there are a few little kind of hacks that you can use to, to help take the edge off. But the truth is, it's just such a painful, difficult journey. It really is. Well, let's bring in uh, let's bring in our guest let's today. Bring in the expert. Yeah, yeah she is really <laughs> an expert in this uh, in this field and really an innovator and one of the leaders in the field of uh, eating disorder and eating disorder treatment. Um, she is the co-founder of Equip Health, 
which is revolutionary. It's it's virtual uh, family based treatment that's healthcare for people with eating disorders, and uh, we're of course talking about the great Aaron Parks. And Aaron, I'm so glad you're here, and um, it's so nice to talk to you. Welcome, Aaron. We're glad you're here. Thank you so much, Ed and Jennifer. I'm really glad to be here. Um, you know, can you just talk a little bit about what Equip does and what prompted you to uh, create this this kind of healthcare, which is which is really uh, new? Yes. Um, well, I was fortunate to get to work in a multidisciplinary hospital and a multidisciplinary care team which means it has that they recognize that when someone is struggling with a mental illness, you don't need just one type of clinician or one type of practitioner. And that's definitely true for eating disorders. You need a dietitian to help you with all sorts of aspects of nutritional rehabilitation. You need a therapist. Sometimes that's an individual therapist to help you with your thoughts and your urges and your emotions. And sometimes it's a family therapist to help your entire family process what they're going through. But you also need the help of a physician. A lot of people with eating disorders get very medically fragile. So you need physicians to make sure you're medically safe. But also a lot of patients with eating disorders choose to also use medications to help them manage their symptoms. So you need a physician to prescribe those. Um, so I was part of this wonderful multidisciplinary team at a hospital, and I loved it and loved the work I was doing. But I realized that our admissions department had to tell more people no than we were able to say yes to. And it got to the point where, I mean, we probably turned down, I don't know, hundreds of people per week, people who couldn't travel to San Diego for treatment, people whose insurance wasn't in network, uh, people who needed treatment today and couldn't wait on a wait list for months. And it really saddened me how unequitable the access to great treatment was. I also watched people travel from all 50 states to get treatment at the hospital that I was at, UC San Diego, here in San Diego. And I'm someone who's really close with my siblings. So seeing these parents travel with their ill kid and usually say goodbye to a different parent, say goodbye to the siblings, say goodbye to school, I just thought about how hard that would be for me when I was a kid. And so while I absolutely loved where I worked, I wanted to figure out how to make eating disorder treatment more accessible to everyone. And that's why at the end of 2019, I started Equip uh, with my co-founder, Christina Saffron. And we didn't know the pandemic was coming. Uh, and it, in some ways, couldn't be better timing. There were We saw eating disorders increase by, some places said 70% during the pandemic. We saw demand quadruple for inpatient hospitalizations, and people couldn't get into treatment. There weren't places to physically go, but there also just weren't enough providers. Uh, so it was very fortunate that we started Equip. Equip is virtual treatment for eating disorders. We give people a full five-person care team. So in addition to that physician, dietitian, and therapist that I spoke of, they also get a family mentor. That is a parent who's already been through eating disorder treatment with their child, who can now mentor a parent who's at the beginning of their journey. And then lastly, our patients also get a peer mentor. That's someone who is in recovery from their eating disorder and is there to help the patient stay motivated, really hard work and help them build a life worth living. Wow. That's incredible. So this is, so this is family. This is FBT, which stands for family-based therapy. Okay. Um, now why isn't FBT practiced more throughout the United States throughout the country. Why isn't it a very common? And and I I ask this because I found that it's it's very uncommon um, in major cities. So what what's going on with that? Yes. So the primary modality of treatment we use is called FBT family based treatment, and it's the unfortunately radical idea that in order to get better, really from anything, you need the support of healthy people around you. I like to compare it to if you thought your 15-year-old was struggling with abusing alcohol. When your 15-year-old goes to soccer practice, you would search their room and you would make sure there wasn't alcohol hidden in the closet or underneath the bed. The same thing is true when your 15-year-old is struggling with an eating disorder. So let's say they have an urge to vomit after meals. As the healthy person in the house, you would make the rules and say, hey, after dinner, you can have unlimited screen time. 
but you have to stay where I can see you. No going to the bathroom, no taking a shower. I want to make sure that you aren't able to act on your urge to vomit after the meal. The same way you'd help your child struggling with substance use to not be able to act on their urge to use substances. And so that is what kind of the crux of SBT. But you're right, Ed, it's really hard to find someone who practices SBT. And I have a couple of theories of why I think that is. Um, The first, we have definitely a failure of our education system. Um, It is expensive to get treat, expensive to go to school. I'm sorry, it's expensive to get treatment too, but it's also expensive to go to school to become a provider. You only have so much time to spend in training. And we aren't always training people on the most cutting edge or evidence-based practices. I think the other thing, and this is really a fault of academics, and I point the finger at myself, a lot of these treatments just live in ivory towers. They just live in the universities and we don't get them dispersed to other people. We sometimes are gatekeepers. We charge a lot of money for someone to get trained in it. And after you've just finished, you know, getting, let's say, your master's degree in therapy, you're already very uh, much in debt to then spend more money to get more training. That's a hard pill to swallow. So we don't do a good job of disseminating evidence-based treatments. I think the other component, though, is partially American culture. So in American culture, there's this pull yourself up by the bootstraps, and it's an individualistic culture. And a lot of you know, we're here to support you when things are going well, but even just the act of therapy is when you're having a hard time, you go deal with it yourself. You go figure yourself out. You go find the motivation or the willpower to do it yourself. So we do have a bit of a culture that asks people who are struggling to get better on their own. And so I think that's kind of one of the reasons FBT hasn't really taken off. Yeah, it's it's really unfortunate. Um, but it, also what you're doing is revolutionary because as you were describing, families do have to travel and they have to move in often. And so that's part of the treatment. And now, but I, I guess the goal of it is to be able to care for your child and care for yourself in your own home. So that's what I find about yeah. the hospital programs is that if you if you did get, and I've heard this and I've experienced it myself, but if you did get involved, you go through a program, then you go home. And what happens is mm. now you're home, <laughs> but the problem is the treatment is stopped. Yeah. It's stopped. Provi- yes. Yeah. Or you're providing the treatment at home for your child. You're, exactly what Aaron said. You're having to, to, you know, help them make good choices and stay where you can see them and not run to the bathroom. And But, but you're not in a program anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And there's no follow-up for, there's very little follow-up from these programs. So, um, Aaron, let's back up for a little bit. For people that don't know what anorexia is or what an eating disorder is, what and and maybe and and I because th- I think there's a lot of misconceptions about actually what it is. What is it? Yeah, so eating disorder is an umbrella term. There's seven different diagnoses that are all eating disorders. They affect uh, boys and girls equally. Um, and non-binary or non-gendered people as well. Um, They affect, we've treated kiddos as young as five, and I've seen people in their 90s have eating disorders. Eating disorders also don't have a look. Uh, They happen in people of all body sizes. Um, The majority of people who have eating disorders aren't necessarily underweight, Um, and they also happen in all races and all education levels and all finance levels. Um, and in fact, when we see communities that have food deserts where it's hard to access food, that's also a place where we see increased rates of eating disorders. So they affect everyone. Um, anorexia and bulimia are the two that most people are familiar with. Um, but all eating disorders have this quality of restricting. So restricting means eating less than your body needs. Sometimes it's eating less calories. So this might be someone still eating throughout the day, but they eat smaller and smaller portion sizes. Sometimes this means that someone is exercising a lot. So they are calorie deficient because they aren't eating enough to keep up with how many calories they're spending. Sometimes this means they cut down the variety of foods they eat. This is when we see people eliminating food groups. It can be real food groups like dairy, um, but can also be kind of made up food groups like snacks, whatever snacks means to them. We also see a lot of people uh, moralizing food and labeling it as good or bad. Um, And then lastly, restricting can also mean the frequency with which they eat. 
And so in all of the eating disorders, there is a component of restricting. In anorexia, the primary behavior is restricting, not eating enough for their body. In bulimia, usually people restrict for as long as they possibly can, and then their body just forces them to eat. And so I just want to pause here for a second. I like to tell people to imagine that I'm like, I'm going to give you a million dollars, but you're not going to drink any fluid for five days. And usually by day two or three, it does not matter how much willpower they have or how many um, things they put in place. Their body does not care about the million dollars. Their body does not care about even being happy. Their body cares about staying alive and your body will force you to go drink some water. It's kind of why when we're thirsty, we dream about water or when we hear water running, it makes us thirsty, right? You think all, your body will make you think all the time about the thing that you want. So in most types of eating disorders, like bulimia, you try so hard to restrict. And then at some point, the biological urge to eat is going to push through and you will eat. This is sometimes eating a normal amount. Sometimes it's what's called a binge. So you feel out of control while you eat. And then in bulimia, after you're done eating, you do a, comp um, you do a compensatory behavior which is oftentimes vomiting, also called purging, but sometimes it's taking laxatives or sometimes it's excessive exercising. There are also a few other types of eating disorders. One is called binge eating disorder. So similar to bulimia, you restrict and then you binge eat and it just doesn't have the compensatory behavior afterwards. Um, in binge eating disorder, similar to bulimia, people restrict for a long period of time and then have a binge episode. They eat but don't have the compensatory behavior uh, after eating. And then ARFID is one of the newest eating disorders that officially became a diagnosis in 2016. And it involves what we sometimes think of as picky eating gone awry. So these are kids, often little kids, five, six, seven, who have either a very limited palate, there's very few foods that they're willing to eat, and that gets in the way of them growing. So we will sometimes see a 10-year-old who weighs the same as when they were six. These kiddos might also have phobias, like they're afraid of choking or afraid of vomiting if they eat. Um, and then some of them also have just really small hunger cues. They have one bite and then they're full and their stomach hurts really easily. So those are some of the types of eating disorders. But what's common in all of them is that their brains are absolutely monopolized by thoughts of food or thoughts of their body, and it's robbing them of joy. There's a lot of people who restrict, a lot of people who sometimes they call it dieting. Um, so those are disordered eating behaviors. Doesn't mean you have an eating disorder. And what really tips it from disordered eating to eating disorder is what's going on in your brain and is it robbing you of enjoying your life? Is there an early warning? Is there a, a preventative or how does a parent? Well, there's two things. I want to talk to you about the voice in in the in someone who's experiencing an eating disorder and how it's different than a, than the critical voice of insecurity that a lot of people feel. Um, let, let's go with that first. What, what's the voice and how is it different for somebody who's going through anorexia, for example, than my critical voice telling me that maybe I'll never work again or something like that, some kind of critical voice thing? Yes. Yeah, in anorexia, the sometimes people call it Ed. They call it the Ed voice is first of all causing them to not spend good for me by the way with my name being ed not not the best thing i've ever heard go ahead erin go just go oh i love that oh, so the ed voice but not you ed uh can the first thing it does is just monopolizes your brain what we hear from people suffering from anorexia is that it never stops i usually ask people like scale of one to ten ten being all the time when you're awake one being eh, never how often are you thinking about food? And they'll usually tell me nine, 10. And then I ask, how often are you thinking about your body? And they often say a nine or a 10. They're just always thinking about food. They're always thinking about their body. The thoughts around food sometimes are anticipatory. Oh, what am I going to eat for lunch? What are they going to make me eat? Are they going to notice if I eat that? So lots and lots of thoughts about what, what should they do? What's the right thing to do? Also, lots of thoughts around moralizing. I need to eat that, but not that. I should do that. I shouldn't do that. So this constant dialogue around this is bad. This is good. Don't do that. That's just exhaust people who 
are trying to work or trying to get through the school day or are trying to have a conversation with their friends, it's always going on in the background. Additionally, a lot of them have really poor body image. And I think sometimes people hear this and like, well, I have poor body image too, but I'm not, you know, requiring all of this treatment. Well, first of all, I want everyone to have better body image. Uh, but for people who are specifically struggling with an eating disorder, it means that they constantly are having thoughts of, if you eat this, you'll get fat. Look at where, look at what your stomach looks like right now. Don't do that. Do you see this happening to your arm? Look at what she's wearing. Is she noticing that you're wearing that? Just constant, constant, constant flood of negative thoughts and negative self-talk around the body and food. And the process of recovery is that that voice, when you go against it, and you don't pay attention to it, it actually tries to battle you. Correct. It gets louder before it gets quieter. And I mean, truly, the only way out is through. It's not that different than substance use disorder as well. You have to eat even when you don't want to eat. And I've worked with so many patients and so many parents that are like, if you can get that voice to go away, then I'll eat. But unfortunately, the treatment that makes the voice go away is eating. So what we find is that for people who are malnourished. And Ed, I don't know, do you think I should go and talk about the Minnesota male starvation study? I find it fascinating. I'm not sure if your listeners will. It is fascinating. Okay. Briefly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Briefly. Yeah, because that's definitely my strength is being brief, but I'll do my best. Here I go. <laughs> so in Minis I'm from Minnesota, but that's not why I love the study. But in Minnesota, in the 40s, there were a group of Mennonites who were conscientious objectors to serving in World War II into the draft. And so the government said, okay, you don't have to participate in the draft, but you have to participate in this year-long study on starvation. So they took these men, all healthy men, um, they actually put them in these dorms that we used to have underneath the football field in Minnesota. Uh, so they lived in these dorms and they started starving them. And they wanted to find out the ultimate goal is how do you best refeed people following a period of starvation? They knew after World War One that a lot of people uh, had their food lines cut off, um, you know, infrastructure damage during the war. What's the best way to feed people? And so they started starving them. I think what's interesting is they cut their calories to like 1,400 a day. I mean, I think Noom put everybody on a diet at 1,200 a day. So we're, we're not talking a huge caloric deficit. But as these men started to lose weight, their eating disorder voices appeared. And in these journals, they wrote, these men are behaving like anorexic girls, is what the researcher wrote. Um, and what we've learned is just the act of being in a physical starvation state induces a mental eating disorder state. The good thing is, is that we know this. The bad thing about this is that it means that for people who have an eating disorder, they have to eat in order for the, they have to do the exact thing the voice is telling them not to do in order to make the voice eventually go away. So this is a mental, there's a, the, just like uh, alcoholism and just like other kinds of addictions, not that this is, but it needs to be treated as a mental health issue and the physical health issue, right? It's not one or the other, but often insurance companies will treat it as a physical issue. Yes, 100%. And I think this is a, a problem with how we've separated things with most payers, right? Is that these are, these are your benefits for physical conditions and these are your benefits for mental health conditions. But we know that without mental health, there is no health. There really is no reason for them to be separated. And so, yes, having an eating disorder really deteriorates you physically, but also deteriorates you mentally. Uh, eating, eating disorder sufferers, die by suicide at a rate far higher than the rest of the population. They also die from heart attacks at a rate far higher than the rest of the population. It's incredibly hard on your heart when you are messing with your nutrition. This is a, both a physical and a mental illness and really needs to be treated as such. Yeah, I mean, there, there, there's so much to this. Let, let's talk a little bit about being a parent and how you identify, because I think that's a big issue is how do you, what do you see when you start to go into that territory where maybe I should get my kid help? Mm -hmm. And Jennifer, I'm so glad you brought up in the beginning about shame and guilt. And that's what we hear a lot from parents of, oh, I should have recognized this earlier. I should have brought them in earlier. So my first piece of advice is the second you think something might be off, trust your parent gut, 
and bring them in. Unfortunately, we're still educating the world about eating disorders, so it is not uncommon. We hear parents tell us all the time, I knew something was off. I brought them into the pediatrician, and the pediatrician said, it's just a phase. It's not that big of a deal. Don't pay too mm-hmm. much attention to it. So there's a lot of misinformation. Don't, don't focus on it too much. Yep, yep. Yes, exactly. Don't focus on it too much. Oh, yeah, that, that myth that if you pay attention to something, um, then surely you'll make it worse. So just don't talk to your child about their self-harm that you see. Don't talk. No. So that, that's bad advice. Bad advice that you're right. It's, it's out there. And so I, I think my number one advice is as parents, trust your gut. If you think something's wrong, something's wrong. And time is not going to make it better, especially with eating disorders. The sooner you start restoring nutrition, the sooner you start getting treatment, the more likely you are to have a full recovery. Uh, so trust your gut, parents. Trust your gut. So let's talk a little bit about recovery. Uh, what does it look like? And are there phases of it or how, how is that, how does that process uh, take place? Yes. With recovery, the first thing that everyone has to work on is nutrition. And it's the last thing that anyone wants to work on. So it definitely is quite hard. So first is to stop restricting, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, ARFID, is to start eating more regularly. Most of our patients will eat three meals and two to three snacks per day. Get into the habit of eating more frequently. That will not put you in a starvation state, which will make the voice get quieter. And it'll also, for people who struggle with binging and purging, reduce the binging and purging episodes by eating more frequently. The next thing is to add variety and quantity of food. So if you are no longer eating anything sold in the candy aisle, you're not eating Snickers, you're not eating maybe cake, anything you've labeled sweets or bad, the longer you go not eating it, the more you're wiring in your brain, Snickers equals bad, Snickers equals bad, Snickers equals bad. And the only way to start undoing that is to walk towards what you're afraid of instead of away from it. So people will say, okay, I'll eat more, but I'll eat more of kale and strawberries and I don't know, insert another food. Um, And instead, it's time to start increasing variety. Eat those foods that you are scared of and then do it again and then do it again and then do it again. Uh, It's like any other fear. The more you do it, the less you'll be fearful of it. Additionally, just the act of being underweight increases depression and increases anxiety. So really make sure you're working with a team if you're underweight to restore weight. And unfortunately, or fortunately, you can't just restore some of the weight. We found that, I'm using the royal we here, all the researchers in the land, that you have to fully restore weight in order for the depression and the anxiety to start to go away. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, so, and and how does somebody know when they're, you know, the process of recovering when they're recovered? Or is there a recovered state? That's a great question. And I sometimes bring it back to thinking about substance use disorder. If someone was struggling with alcohol and they hadn't had any alcohol for three days, would we call them recovered? Probably not. Well, what about three months? What about three years? It's hard to say, right, where the line is. And that's when I like people to look at the rest of their life. Are you trying out for the school soccer team? Are you laughing with your friends? Are you having fun with your family on the weekends? Is your brain thinking about things other than food in your body? That's what recovery is. And oftentimes it can take a year or more to get there. And that was a huge part of us starting Equip is partnering with insurance companies so that insurance will pay for a full year of treatment or more. Um, It's wonderful. This way you get to have your same therapist, your same dietitian for a year and then many people stay with us beyond a year, not because they're not recovering, but because life is thinking hard. We live in diet culture. Uh, transitions can be hard. You have one flu season and you accidentally lose weight and feel like you're back to square one. Um, so recovery can be a long path. And like any other field, there's lots of debates in the field and debates of, amongst those with lived experience. Um, I genuinely believe that full recovery is possible. I've watched a lot of people fully recover. One of the joys of treating teenagers is that they've come back to me as young adults and they'll say things like, Erin, I 
remember you and I remember liking you, but I don't actually remember a single session with you. I'm like, we spent months and months together with you crying, with you throwing things like, <laughs> and they have no recollection of it. Um, it's truly just a blip on the radar of adolescence. Uh, so that is true for a lot of people. And I think there are also a lot of people who feel like they're always working on it. Like they might be fully weight restored. They might be enjoying life, but they always have to make that extra effort to not skip a meal. They always have to make an extra effort when they're angry to not vomit, even though they think that would make them feel better. Um, and I think, you know, there's lots of things that contribute to who fully recovers versus who always works on it. I think there's a lot of, you know, it could be multi-generational trauma. There's lots of systemic factors that can make it a little bit harder to recover. But for many people, full recovery is possible. You know, Aaron, I, I find that, um, you know, some of the treatments that I've read about or heard about or seen even, um, and I don't, I'm sure this isn't the case with Equip, but it's very talky and thinky. In other words, you're not <laughs> acting out the voice. You're not doing therapeutic role play. You're not doing, uh, you're not, you're not doing creative stuff and, and practices and, and exercises and different things like that. There's a lot of talking and there's a lot of thinking. And my question is, why would you involve with a thinking disorder? Why would you cater to more thinking? It just doesn't like DBT is a thinker's thing. It's a lot of thinking. It's, it's a lot of strategizing in your head, but you're not acting it out. And I feel like externalizing these thoughts is a huge thing and something that people should, should do. I, I'm right to hurt with you, Ed. I think, first of all, people who struggle with eating disorders, if anything, they spend way too much thinking. These are very cerebral people, oftentimes very high achievers. Um, to say they overthink is an understatement. So I agree, thinking is, is not what we should be asking them to do more of. Uh, it's one of the reasons why SBT or family-based treatment works so well. And SBT also works if you're having a, an adult sister help you or a spouse or a best friend. It doesn't have to be your parents. And what we tell the parents is we need to help your child to stop thinking. So parents, you are in charge of what is going to be for breakfast and you're in charge of plating it. So they just and of course, they're going to protest at first, but usually pretty quickly, kiddos and adults even become relieved. They're like, oh, fantastic. I just don't have to constantly think about it anymore. I'll think for hours and hours and hours all night long about what am I going to have for breakfast? What am I going to have for breakfast? No, your spouse or your mom or whoever's helping you recover, your dad is going to say, this is breakfast. Um, but then I think the same thing is true of therapy. And this is why I've been so excited like that's maybe my 800th reason of why I think Equip is wonderful and bringing it virtual is we say to people, hey, you need to stop thinking about your body and food all the time. But here, come be in this treatment program with us for eight hours a day where we're going to talk about food and your body all day long. Of course, they're going to keep thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So the joy of bringing virtually is it allows people to continue living their life. I don't want someone sitting in group therapy talking about their body. I want them trying out for the soccer team. I want them at play practice. Like I want them building a life worth living. And I was very, very, very excited to be invited on this podcast because I'm a huge fan of comedians and the process of writing. And I, I think that basically therapists are just comedians who weren't funny, right? Like, so if you, if you feel super silly, <laughs> you become a comedian, but if you're not funny, then you have to be a therapist. Um, That's a dividing line. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, and so people have asked me why I've enjoyed working with kids with eating disorders, because they definitely are pretty maligned in, um, like when going through training, the only training I received on how to treat people with eating disorders was don't do it. They're awful. They're the worst, which I don't find to be true. Um, because when you watch a teenager start to recover, you're an adult, but I really see this in the teenagers. You see the lights come back on and these are yeah. funny, witty exciting people. So I agree with you, Ed and Jennifer, like if we can get them spending less time thinking and more time acting or finding different ways to like get out of their head, I think that'd be great. Living. Yeah, absolutely. Building a life worth living. And uh, I think there is, you know, there's definitely support in the community. There's definitely support in a family, but really what you're teaching somebody, what you're talking about is how to relate 
to their thoughts and feelings uh, when they come up, the difficult ones and the other kind too, the celebratory ones, all of it. But this back and forth sometimes we're not used to or we run away from. And as Jennifer was saying, go towards, go towards, not away. Erin, I want to wonder if we could loop back to the conversation that Ed and I were having at the very beginning yeah. um, about parents and what and you know what they go through and how they can care for themselves and look after themselves a little bit. I wanted to kind of close that loop. I'd love that. I think uh, I'm a parent myself, and when your child is struggling with anything, really, it affects every cell of your body. Uh, it, it monopolizes your thoughts when your child is suffering. I think what makes eating disorders yeah. so unique and hard is that unlike other either mental illnesses or physical illnesses, the person who's suffering, the teenager who's suffering, often is pretty ambivalent about whether or not they want to recover. So if you're depressed, you want to stop being depressed. If you're anxious, you want to stop being anxious. But eating disorder kind of want to hold on to that. So parents yeah. are put impossible task of both worrying about their child while watching their child do like non-pro health behaviors. So it's tough. Additionally, like if your child has, I mean, God forbid, your child's going through chemo, there's a meal train set up for you when people are dropping lasagnas off on your porch every Monday, Wednesday, Friday. But if your child's going through an eating disorder, no one knows what to say to you and they stay away from you. Yeah. That's really tough. Crickets. Yeah. Yeah. Crickets. Yeah. What do you tell, what, what do you tell, oh, go ahead, continue. Yeah. Um, so it is very important to take care of yourself. And as tired as the oxygen mask analogy is, it, it's said frequently because it's true. You have to take care of yourself if you're going to be able to take care of your child, because it's also a marathon. Get, helping your child through an eating disorder is not a one week or a three month type thing. It's, it's usually a full year of maybe supervising their food when you normally wouldn't. Um, having to say no to things you want to say yes to, like, well, no, you can't go to that sleepover because we're supposed to be gaining one pound a week and you would miss, you know, three whole meals if you went to that, right? You're saying no to stuff you want to say yes to. It's different than how you normally parent. These are usually kids who've been excellent kids. The number of times I hear, I have never, ever had a problem with my kiddo and then this, and it's just, flip parenting on its head. So you have to be gentle with yourself and you have to take care of yourself. Yeah. Very true. When does the parent, when does the, the, the kid taking over their uh, plating and their, you know, the, the, the uh, responsibility for their food, how does that start to transition? Let's say, you know, there are kids going to college, things like that. Well, how does it, how does it all kind of, how does it make, how do you make the transition? Yeah, so most often treatment starts with, let's just not make you think about anything, teenager, like parents are going to take care of it or grandparents, um, and then gradually add things back in. So for some people, it's not till six months later, and then some people, it's, you know, a couple of weeks later, and they say, you know what, I want to try snack. So, okay, you try whatever snack you want. And this is usually when we are on weight restoration. So we're trying to gain one to two pounds per week. So if we're saying, okay, kid, you're on your own for lunch at school, we trust you, you're going to buy whatever you say you're going to buy at the cafeteria, but then you're not consistently gaining weight every week, then we're going to have to intervene and take lunch back over, or we're going to have to intervene and take snacks back over. And I think that one of the things that parents can do to set them up, set themselves up for success is to really lower their expectations and be intentional about them. There's a mom that I worked with that I just loved her for her honesty. And I think that's my advice to all parents is just take a moment to be really honest with yourself. And so I'm like, what are you worried about? And she's I'm like, what's driving you nuts? And she's like, well, I'm worried that she's restricting and I'm worried that she's vomiting. But I also don't like that she keeps dyeing her hair because people stare at us at Temple. And I don't like that she wants to get a tattoo. And I don't like that she swears in front of her brother. And I don't like that I have to remind her to do her homework. And I really, really appreciated how incredibly honest she was about the end destination was a child who didn't want to dye their hair, who didn't swear in front of their little brother, and of course, didn't self-harm or vomit or restrict. And so I think as parents, we have to stop for a second and think like, okay, why do we want these behaviors to change? What's going on for us? Am I feeling shame? Jennifer, you mentioned embarrassment. Like, am I feeling embarrassed? Am I feeling guilty? Just be really honest with yourself 
so that you can then be gentle and graceful with yourself. And the expectation is going to be, hey, get out. I'm going to give you control of your snack back. And I expect it to go however it's going to go, but I expect to have the data to decide in a week or two if you get to keep that privilege. So if you get to be in charge of school lunch and snacks after having not been in charge of it for three months and you lose weight or you stop staying on your weight restoration path, well, then I'm just taking it back over. And I'm not feeling mad at you, kiddo, for not doing it. I'm not feeling guilty or frustrated that we're not making progress. I'm having the expectation that treatment's going to be nonlinear. And so releasing myself from this emotional attachment of anything going quote unquote good or quote unquote bad. The good thing is that we caught it when it isn't working. And so then I take control back again. I don't know if that answered it a little bit. Yeah. I love that too, because it's, it's as hard as it is to be neutral. You really have to present that to the child. Because a lot of them are verbal ninjas. Like they can make an argument. They can have your head spinning in seconds and you don't even remember what the argument was about. And they're so brilliant at convincing you that this is different and they really did this and that. And when a parent is exhausted and tired, that can just become overwhelming. So that kind of straight neutral, this is how it is. Um, The same way it's nice for the child to not have to worry about what's for dinner. (laughs) Give the parent that freedom to just be, you know what, be super neutral. This is how it is. You set it up ahead of time and now you're taking it back. Yes. Well, and I think with that, Jennifer, is this need that any other healthy adults are on the same page as you because it's not enough that you're going to have because you're right. Oh my gosh, they're verbal skills. They can just, oh, there's all of them should become lawyers, master debaters, all of them, (laughs) all of them. Um, But so that means that you need to have (laughs) the other person in the house if there's another adult in the household make sure that they're not going to say, oh, it's fine. They can skip snacks. They're right. It was a big dinner. I just have one question to ask you before we close here. This has been amazing. United front. Absolutely. Um, Why did you go into this work? I mean, I have to be honest, I stumbled into it and I'm so glad that I did. And so maybe the more honest answer is, is why do I stay in it? I, did not set out to work in the eating disorder space. And once I got there, I have to admit, I was just absolutely blown away by how much parents love their kids. At the time, I had a four-month-old when I discovered the world of treating eating disorders. I got a fellowship on accident. I was off-cycle for fellowship because of giving birth to my son. And they were the only place hiring. They just had a fellow unexpectedly leave. And it absolutely blew me away to see parents show up day after day doing the hard work and their kids sometimes their their eating disorder caused them to act outside their values. So they definitely weren't appreciating their parents during a lot of treatment. And yet breakfast, lunch, and dinner and snacks and treatment and family therapy and group therapy, the parents just kept showing up. And it was just this like beautiful display of consistent love. Like I'm just going to keep on trying. Yeah. And fierce, right? Yeah. Fierce, 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 powerful love. Yep. It's amazing. Yep. Okay. That, that's a good reason. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's very powerful. How much parents love their kids. This has been amazing. I'm so grateful to you for coming in and, and doing this. Yes. Thank you yeah. so much. This is so fun. Where do parents go? We want to help, uh, you know, wh- how do they find out more? How do they get support and how do they find out about Equip? Yeah, we would love to help. So we help patients with eating disorders at all stages of their journey. So one in four of our patients have never had treatment before. And one in four of our patients are coming from a medical hospitalization stay where their heart was compromised and their eating disorder. So we help people at all parts of their journey. You can go to www.equip.health, H-E-A-L-T-H. And there's information there. We help kids as young as six and we're in all 50 states. So we would love to help, if nothing else, provide you information to help you find the best fit for your family as you figure out how to find joy again. Uh, Aaron Parks, uh, the co-founder of Equip, and I have to say to you, um, this is heroic stuff, what you're doing. 
Thank you so much, Chad. Thank you so much, Jennifer. I was just delighted when you asked me. So thank you for having me here. And, and thanks for normalizing eating disorders. It's, it's still kind of the mental health condition that no one wants to talk about. So thank you. And we really appreciate it. Now, as you heard uh, where you can go to find out more about Equip, uh, if you need help, uh, reach out, reach out. You're a parent, you're, you're in the weeds, reach out. Um, and, and we'll figure it out. We'll figure it out. Uh, Jennifer, I never asked you to do this, but would you just talk a little, you know, just tell them about Connected Parenting? Sure. So, so Connected Parenting. So where do I start? So we teach parents how to use compassion and language and empathy as emotional nutrition. So really helping parents using language as medication, right? So we're sort of this, it's this amazing way that we teach parents to communicate with their kids, help their kids. Um, but also set really loving limits because limits are love too. And so we work with all kinds of kids that have all kinds of issues and lots of parents who just want to be good parents and want to have lots of good information. We work with kids who have anxiety, who have emotional disorders. We often work with kids that have eating disorders, but we'll work in tandem. We'll usually work as a complementary source. Um, and we, you know, I teach parents how to self-parent. That's also really important. Um, and we love what we do. So, yeah. Worldwide organization, worldwide community, connectedparenting.com. Um, okay. Well, that's our show for this week. I have to say my big takeaway is that I'm still kind of working through the fact that the critical voice in the head is named Ed. I don't appreciate it. I'm not happy about it and I'll have to deal with it on my own because we, I have to go off the air now. But uh, thank you, everybody. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And uh, um, I want to tell you that you can find the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. And you can go to makelightmedia.com, makelightoneword.media.com. And thank you. Be good to yourselves. Look for the good. Keep coming back. It works if you work it. I'm Ed Krasnick, and we'll see you next time.